Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. First off, what you need to know about us is that thinking differently and innovatively about solving big social issues is what makes us tick. We love offering new perspectives on social innovation and social justice. So we hope you'll be inspired to make a difference wherever you are. We're changing the way, we're changing the world. Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast with me, your host, Kinsey Khatebe. At the Bertha Center, we work with inspiring leaders who are catalysts for social justice, economic change, and human rights. We observe the world through a systems change lens, which means we don't see any social issues as a problem in isolation. Neither do we try to address it in that way. There is always a ripple effect, or chain reaction, if you will, of small incidents, thinking patterns, or beliefs that leads to bigger social problems surfacing. Looking through a systems change lens helps us to focus on the root causes of social problems and allows for the transformation of the whole system that created the problem in the first place. Personally, something that I've noticed in my work focused on mental health and the large treatment gap that we have in South Africa is that the current estimates indicate that less than a third of South Africans can access the mental health services that they need. Now, you may think to yourself that the solution would be simple. If we just increase funding for mental health, then surely that would plug the gap. However, in order to adequately address mental health needs in South Africa, we need to unpack the bigger picture. Thinking about how our institutions are designed, how we train practitioners in the field, the policies that we have designed and implemented, the role played by activists and NGOs, as well as the current attitudes about mental health. And at the same time, not forgetting the existing socioeconomic drivers of mental health, such as inequality, unemployment, the incidence of HIV and AIDS, and the high levels of crime and gender-based violence, we start to understand that the issue of mental health is a whole lot more complex. Social justice and social systems innovation are fundamental to the Bertha Center's vision and strategy. In a nutshell, we see the social systems innovation as an approach that helps us to do the work that moves us towards a transformed, inclusive, and sustainable society characterized by social, economic, and environmental justice. Throughout this podcast series, we'll be featuring a variety of guests as we highlight the work and thinking of the Bertha Center and innovators researching, teaching, and working in the field. We'll discover how creativity, cutting-edge innovation, and collaboration can help make the world a better place. Who are some of the people behind the Bertha vision? We've asked a few of our Bertha team members to share their thoughts on why a systems thinking approach is key in changing the way we're changing the world. A systems approach is key because it asks us to look at the complexity of a challenge and recognize that there are numerous factors, people, organizations, and forces at play, and that those need to be considered when thinking about how to address the challenge. It expands the range of choices available for solving a problem by broadening our thinking. And it helps us to articulate problems in new and different ways. It enables us to explore the interrelationships 
that exist within environments. When you tinker around the edges of a system, the wholesale buy-in tends to be thin. And incremental approach in a time of such global urgency is not fast enough to solve problems. So when we talk about system thinking, we're looking at fundamental change within an ecosystem, looking at the building blocks of that system and seeing how they can be upended. And although there is a drag and a Herculean effort required to begin with, I think that it will accelerate the process towards change as we advance uh, to a very uncertain future. Speaking of a systems approach, something that is topical in the world right now is how to respond innovatively in a crisis. What do you do when your nation is hit by a pandemic and you only have a few days to prepare? COVID-19 took everyone by surprise. At first, many of us felt detached from the situation, almost as if we were simply hearing about tragic events happening abroad, first in China, then Italy, then Iran. Then it started to snowball, and soon the reality hit South Africa. Those in low-income communities are hit hardest, with people losing jobs and masses going hungry. Imagine having to stand in a four-kilometer queue, waiting for a food parcel because you have no other means. This has been the reality for many. Even if we knew months ago what we now know, with the poverty and inequality levels in South Africa, who knows how much time would have been enough time to adequately prepare. In our first episode, we talked to Tracy Malawana and Ella Schiappers about Cape Town Together and their involvement in community action networks. Tracy Malawana is currently the Deputy General Secretary of Equal Education, and Ella Schiappers is a Bertha Scholar who is currently pursuing her PhD at the Graduate School of Business at UCT. Cape Town Together is a rapid community-based response to the COVID-19 pandemic. They aim to inspire ordinary people to form local community action networks at their local neighborhoods. The impact has been immense. Tracy and Ella, thank you so much for joining me today. And given our current situation, this interview is being recorded online as innovation is needed in, in all things. Ella, I just wanted to start with you. You're part of the Woodstock Can in Cape Town. What's the story behind Cape Town Together and how did the cans first come about? Sure. Hi. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, yeah, it's so strange to be doing this not in person and not being able to kind of see faces. But thank you so much for having this conversation. I'm quite excited, looking forward to exploring the different narratives that are happening across the city, but also across South Africa. In terms of the Cape Town Together Network specifically and the Woodstock CAN, we were one of the first CANs to start up because the Cape Town Together Facebook page went riot and put out a call for people to join, for people who were interested in community activating around COVID-19 specifically, saying that uh, it was coming and that public education was needed in order to protect our communities and to protect ourselves. And so there was this wide, citywide call that was made on Facebook and my partner signed up 
on the Google form that they created. It sounds so basic. Um, and it was so incredible because through that form, they were able to start connecting people who were all in the same neighborhoods, but who had never met before. And so we got an email that said, hey, these people in your neighborhood also signed up on the form and said that they were interested in getting involved in local community organizing around COVID. So here you go, run wild. So the people on the on the email all then connected to each other. We set up a WhatsApp group and then we set up our first Zoom call, which was one of the strangest experiences because we've never met in real life. And we were all on a Zoom call, kind of like, we're not sure what we're doing. We're not public health experts. We actually have no idea where this is going. But it was an incredible combination of activists who had been activating in Woodstock for a really long time and newbies who had just moved there or who were just interested in getting involved and helping out. And through that connection, we were able to find small ways forward. Now, this is really interesting because, Tracy, you're based in Johannesburg and not Cape Town, and you're specifically based in Tembisa. What drew you to, to Cape Town together, and why did you feel it was important to get involved in this movement that hadn't actually sprung up in Joburg yet? So I work for a social movement called Equal Education, currently serving as the Deputy General Secretary there. So my colleagues, uh, our head office is based in Kailicha. And my colleagues are part of the Kailicha um, uh, Ken. So I was, you know, uh, engaging with them and uh, trying to follow some of the things that they've been doing. But before that, I uh, had this idea that we need to organize um, ward councillors to do something in their communities. Because I stay in a township, right? And um, before lockdown, there was no meeting that was called. There were no pamphlets that were like raising awareness about uh, COVID-19 and how people can protect themselves, the stigma and, uh, and everything that has to do with uh, COVID-19. So I, I, I was somehow engaging with my colleagues who are part of the Kailicha um, Ken. And, um, you know, I started like putting together a proposal of what is it that we can do um, and engaging some of the young people that I know um, in Tembisa. Then I think a um, few weeks after, uh, there was a call for Gauteng uh, Together, um, which I also thought maybe I should sign up as an admin. But it was also difficult for me because um, I work uh, full-time, right? And at the same time, I want to do this uh, something nice for my community because there's a gap and the, there's no one who's feeling that particular gap. So I signed online, uh, but mine was a little bit different. So I didn't, uh, you know, uh, wait for um, the Gauteng together to give me, to allocate me a, a, set, a number of people who, who are going to assist. So I approach young people who are unemployed in my, um, in my city um, township, Tembisa. Then I asked those young people to, um, you know, for us to meet and uh, try and identify things that we can do in these communities. I'm just wondering if you could give us context. When you speak about informal settlements, what are the challenges that are cropping up there and what role has being part of the CAN played in assisting in that area? So if you look at informal settlements and the people who live uh, in informal settlements, in most cases, they are marginalized and poor. Um, access to basic needs like water, like clean drinking water, sufficient uh, healthy food, especially for preg pregnant women, people with chronic disease, um, you know, the issues of uh, immune system because of uh, the conditions that people are subjected to in those areas. 
um, the issue of dignified sanitation, uh, the issue of access to sanitary pads for girls, uh, healthcare services, accurate to information. It has been proven difficult and near, um, impossible, you know, in some communities. So those are some of the challenges that we see there. There's issues of land. Uh, people are, you know, um, they, they live on top of each other, if I may put it that way. So it's quite difficult to even practice social distancing. How do you even begin to speak about social distancing in such, in such a setting? Now, what you're saying, um, Tracy, is actually really interesting because, Ella, you're organizing in a completely different context. You're based in, 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 in a suburb in Cape Town, in Woodstock. Could you perhaps unpack what are some of the unique challenges that you encountered in doing this work in Woodstock, reflecting on, on what Tracy just said and how the can approach them? I mean, I think what's interesting about Woodstock specifically is that it is very much a mixed income community. We have people who have been living here kind of pre-apartheid. We have kind of working class community. We have very, very, very middle class, upper class, rich community. And that's all in one place. And previously, it's been really, really difficult to bring people together because of the class and race segregation of the community. The discussions around gentrification have been really violent in some ways uh, towards those who are being pushed out by the kind of gentrifying forces uh, and the kind of, yeah, raising, rising in rent, uh, tariffs, etc., all the challenges that happened around gentrification. And so any kind of community organizing has been really segregating in many ways and unsupportive of those who have been living in this community for the longest. And one of the things that I think COVID has done is that it's really brought the community together in a way that it had never been before with this recognition that Corona was something that impacted everybody directly. Um, and that, you know, it, it was something that to varying degrees, obviously, um, in terms of the impact on people's lives, but uh, everyone recognized that they were going to be affected. And so the challenges were this thing around people were at different in very, very, very different places in their lives, different levels of privilege um, and very different levels in their activism. And that's been really difficult. So there are people who have been active in this community for a very, very long time. We've got a feeding scheme that has been here for years and years and know deeply about the community, about its vulnerabilities. And then you have these new, very excited, very well-meaning um, people with lots, lots of resources who want to get involved. And so what does it mean to to create a space where this different level of activism, this different level of awakeness to your community of people trying to come together and kind of required this idea of moving at the speed of trust is something that's that, that has sat with the community action networks a lot because it requires patience um, to not treat everyone with suspicion, especially those who have been doing this work for a very, very long time. And they're suddenly like, who are you, you know? Who are these new people who suddenly want to get involved? Um, and so there's something about a humility, leaving space for the more experienced to take the lead, 
while not dampening the excitement of the newbies who want to get involved and want to show support. No, thanks, Ella. I think those those reflections are actually quite important and they're bringing me back to something that Tracy mentioned earlier about organizing and not coming from the outside. And and Tracy, I want to go back to something that you spoke about working with young people. And I'm curious about what has been the response being part of the Timbisa can working as, you know, equal education. This isn't an apolitical space. There's a lot of history here. How has the community responded to the work of CANS? And I'm, I'm, I'm asking, assuming that a lot of the people that are driving this process are young people. How's the rest of the community responding to that? Yeah, so I think maybe let me uh, first mention that it has been quite difficult for these young people, for the Timisa Ken, because uh, most of uh, the people that I work with are people who are maybe uh, within the higher education, um, you know, um, sector, uh, like students, um, and some of them are unemployed. So it's not like in other cans where people come from, uh, you know, uh, certain institutions. Um, let's say maybe or organizations uh, that can somehow support financially in terms of transport and all that. So for the Tembisa Can, we uh, had to think about how we're going to support people to get to those five communities, the 10 people, including myself, to access those five communities. And then because of that, we then said that it's better if we identify people in those communities so that they are able to organize in their communities and we don't need to worry about transport and, you know, uh, maybe, um, let me say, um, maybe stipend for food. Um, so those are some of the things that we had to think about. But at the same time, you need to think about airtime for those, uh, for, for, for our team members and also for the people that have identified in those communities. So I just wanted to highlight that, 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 that has been one of the difficult things to do because um, you're working with people who do not have some form of, um, you know, financial support either from like home or from an organization that they are associ- associated with. Um, so we, what we, how we access these communities is that we, we reach out to street committees because you can't just like rock up in a community and, you know, you want to do things in your way because you, you don't belong in that community. So there's also that. So we've, um, we set up meetings with the ward councillors in those, um, sorry, uh, not ward councillors, uh, street committees in those, um, communities. Uh, we, uh, introduce ourselves, uh, explain what we, we wanted to do, check whether are they doing, um, any work around COVID-19. And there was no one who's doing, uh, any work around COVID-19. So we, we were welcomed by those communities, but uh, most, Im- most important, we were welcomed by the people who are leading those communities. Then there's another issue then when we are like inside. Most of those people who are street committees are very old. So now you need to think about how do you then mobilize young people within that community? Because you know that when working with uh, old people, things can go quite well, but there's also an issue of, you know, um, power, uh, age, and all that. So we, 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 we access those communities. Then we're like, we're looking for young people who are going to be able to drive this process, um, who are not going to be bent out. So those, um, the people within the, the ward, um, that particular, uh, community and the street, um, street committees were able to identify young people within that setting and um, they linked us with those people. And that's how we came about, um, you know, having groups of 
like small groups of people organizing in those different communities. Sure, Tracy, that's, I think what you're unpacking there are so many important issues. And I think that leads me to um, an article you recently wrote, Ella, in Open Global Rights about some of the organizing principles of the CANs. And Tracy just mentioned too, right now around ownership, but also the idea of thinking about innovative ways to support each other and finding resources to share amongst the community. I wonder if you could perhaps unpack what are some of those organizing principles that have made the CANs successful? So it's interesting because my partner and I both have worked with feminist organizations for quite a long time. And I think what we started seeing was that we, that some of the feminist, feminist principles that we've seen work in terms of how feminist organizations share power and engage with the idea of power were what we were seeing happening in the community action networks. And it was such an empowering experience as a woman, as a woman of color, to feel like I was in a position within my community with the privilege that I have to engage and organize and and be present. in ways that I I hadn't felt in a very long time. And I actually received that kind of feedback from other women, the cans being majority women, which is really, really interesting. And I think that that fact, there's something about this power of what it means to be aware of our power, but also want to engage with it. And so the principles we're just pointing out how are the different ways that the community action networks and specifically us in Woodstock, we're trying to think about our organizing differently. And so one of the key ones was focusing on critical critical connections more than critical mass. So it wasn't about how many people we had in the network. It was about the relationships between those people and the extent to which we trusted each other and the extent to which we respected each other and this, the extent to which we acknowledged the privilege and the power that was playing out in the relationships between us. So were we being humble in the way that we were engaging with each other? And were we trying to build solidarity? And then there was this idea of practicing collective consciousness, which was instead of there being particular leaders, you know, where you could say, well, this person is the leader or this person is the decision maker. And then one of the final ones was moving at the speed of trust, which was really hard when you're working in a pandemic, when everything feels really urgent and, you know, people are hungry and now it's raining in Cape Town. And these are urgent issues that require urgent responses. But we recognized or and we recognized that we wanted these to be long term relationships. And so we needed to build relationships of trust that allowed us to find responses that weren't just short-term, but also would hopefully build long-term solutions to these challenges. So where some things required immediate responses, other things required us just to sit with the question for a little bit, to say, okay, we don't have an answer to this right now. Can we sit with this and, and return to it next week? Which is really difficult to do, especially as activists, um, to be able to say, okay, well, we need to talk to some more people, we need to reach out to more of the network, and then we can try and answer this this question. So those have been some of the interesting organizing principles that I have felt have been very different. And I think 
people feel like they want to become involved because they feel this sense of ownership. They feel this sense of relationship between the people in the community action network, but also their relationship with their community is stronger. I think what's really important about what you've shared is this idea that Cape Town Together is is a network. So because it's hyper-local, there is no central node or a place where you can go and say, these are the people that are driving this process. Everybody's driving where they are comfortable and leading where they are comfortable, which is actually quite unique when you think about social movements globally as well as here in South Africa. And I'm wondering, Tracy, you're involved with equal education and your work has really been around transforming the education system in South Africa. Thinking about that parallel of how the CANs are organized, where there isn't a central leadership structure, do you think that has contributed to the success of Cape Town Together? Um, I... I believe so. I believe because of, um, you know, the, the moment to find ourselves um, in, I think that there's a, I think that um, moment creates an opportunity for people to, you know, when you, okay, let me say when you're leading um, during crisis, it's different. It's different than when you're leading, you know, um, yeah, in a normal uh, context. So you'd look at, um, let's say, your fees must fall. If you still remember your fees must fall, um, you know, protest actions. Um, there were no leaders. Everyone was like, I'm doing my best. I want this to work. Then you, you, you look at other, you know, um, you know, moments of crisis where people are like, if you have resources, bring your resources. If you are fluent in terms of like public speaking, you'll do that. If you're comfortable in this, just do whatever that you, that you want to do. What we, where we want to, uh, sorry, do whatever that you think it's best uh, for the moment that we are in and do whatever that will get us to our end goal, which is maybe, um, you know, accessing free um, education. So I think even in this context, because it's a moment of crisis, everyone is trying to do their best and everyone has, you know, good intentions. And it's easy for 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 uh, those uh, community um, action networks to be to to operate without anyone leading that process. But if we were organizing in a different context, then I, I think it would be a different story. Um, but at Equal Education, how we organize in schools, um, that work is led by equalizers, um, school-going learners in those particular schools. It's not led by me. Um, I only, we only like provide, uh, a space on a weekly basis where people can meet, um, and, you know, uh, engage in like different topics that are affecting their le- education and learning, teaching and learning within, um, uh, school uh, premises or inside the classroom. So I think, I think there's something to learn, um, that organizing during a crisis create, um, a certain opportunities for us to maybe try and think about uh, when organizing an, in a normal uh, context. So, for instance, we we will be like hosting uh, a panel discussion with uh, a, a group of um, you know uh, young activists who are uh, organizing within the education sector, uh, and we have led um, or organized during um, crisis moments in different parts of uh, of uh, of the world, and. Uh, when you read about it, even online, it's it's different than when you're organizing in like, um, you know, in a normal context. So I'd say that it does work. Um, yeah, I think I think anything. It, let me say, organizing in crisis 
create a certain opportunity. And I think there's so much to learn about that. But it's also different when you're organizing in in a normal like context. So I'd say that um, I think I think the the community action networks are successful because everyone wants to do what's right. We are in the middle of a crisis. But if we were organizing in a normal context um, and wanted to achieve uh, something that uh, nobody cares about, I don't think it would have been like um, I don't think the response would have, would have been like the same. Thanks, Tracy. And I think when you're speaking about all these different social movements that we've had in South Africa, fees must fall, roads must fall, um, particularly around gender-based violence, even before we had the lockdown, it leads me to the next and, and, and final question around how do we see the work and impact of CANS going beyond the pandemic? So I think both Ella and Tracy, you have both reflected on what have been some of the things that have made the community action networks relatively successful um, during this period? But looking forward, what do we think the impact of this can be, whether it's to our ways of organizing or how communities relate to one another? And, and maybe Ella, if you could reflect first around what do you think this is going to look like post-COVID-19 or post-lockdown? Yeah, I think we've been thinking about this as a community action network. I, I have a feeling that quite a lot of the Cape Town cans are already starting to think about this because they feel the movement of time and of the crisis shifting and there's this sense of kind of awe of what has been created but also this deep questioning of what is next and 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 how i just remember somebody asking like how do we hold on to this how do we how do we keep this momentum keep this sense of connection and we had a Woodstock can futures dreaming session two weeks ago where we just had a Zoom and we were like, okay, guys, so what would this, what would you want us to be doing? You know, what what would we be doing, each of us? What would it look like? Um firstly, I realize it's really hard for people to dream when you're in it. Um, it's really difficult to without connecting it to direct action, if that makes sense. So people are like, well, you know, we can't do that right now. And we're like, yeah, but this is what dreaming is, right? <laughs> Thinking what is possible. And so that practice of dreaming and the, the responses were so beautiful. So work around getting businesses in Woodstock to support unemployment in Woodstock. To, so, to, you know, one business must hire a certain amount of people from the community, Um what does community gardening look like? They want to start community gardens. What does uh, kind of community support for local craftsmanship look like? And like all these really beautiful, very possible ideas. And I suppose the challenge is that if this level of engagement came out of Corona, recognizing the things like the housing crisis didn't bring people together, things like the water crisis didn't bring people together, and so time will tell whether this is sustainable, you know, whether this community action network is a sustainable success, that people are coming together and they're doing things and they're feeding people and they're raising funds and they're making masks. And that's been powerful. But sex, su success to us, I think, is that this engagement happens around other issues, that it happens around unemployment, around poverty around p police brutality, around gentrification, around things that are directly affecting people and continue to directly affect people in our community. 
And so I think that's what sustainable success would look like to us. And it does feel possible um, on our good days. So we shall see. Thanks. Thanks, Ella. Tracy, I wonder what the future, from your perspective, organizing in Tembisa looks like based on the work that you've done with the CANs. Um, yeah, I just wanted to echo what um, Ella was saying, that uh, even in moments of crisis, we need to dream. Uh, we need to imagine life beyond you know, the pandemic, even though we can't do that, but we need f- to find alternative ways or, or to find ways to even like allow ourselves to dream beyond um, the pandemic. So I think for us, um, what we've been doing is uh, trying to build um, hope within those communities, um, trying to um, show the communities that there's so much that they can do, trying to show them that they have the power to decide how their communities look like, and they have a power to uh, demand um, you know, better services from um, their local uh, government or municipal. So what we, we've been doing, uh, we've been trying to uh, link uh, different communities with their ward councillor. So engaging the ward councillors and say, this is what you, this is your role. This is what you are supposed to be doing. And it uh, seems like you're not doing that, um, you know, particular things. You need to go and maybe um, uh, meet with um, a particular community. You need to engage um, a mayor around these issues. This is a number of people that we've identified who do not have access to, um, you know, uh, sufficient food. You need to make sure that those people are somehow assisted by government in that um, in that particular city, the city of Ekurulen, in our context. So I think we've been um, trying to link uh, communities with their um, ward councillors. But at the same time, thinking about how does municipal work and uh, what is it that it will take for, you know, that community to access basic needs from government, especially since um, the ward councillor in that particular area doesn't really, you know, care. So, so those are some of the things that we've been doing to people, um, you know, uh, just reminding them that they have the power because they, they vote now and then for a particular ward councillor, um, for, you know, local elections. So they have a right to demand those things. And they also need to give themselves time to understand and learn how municipal operates. So our long-term um, goal is to get um, ward councillors active in like all the informal settlements that they, um, that they lead. Um, and also making sure that um, there's synergies between uh, provincial government, um, city government, uh, uh, city's government, as in like Ekurulen, city of Ekurulen, Jobek, Twan, and so forth. Then there's also synergies within uh, local um, government, because at this point in time, the, uh, yeah, we, we are lacking that. So those are some of the things that we're trying to, to build as a long-term uh, solution. Thanks, guys. That was the last question. So thank you so much. The Bertha Centre team has the opportunity to learn from the best in the business when it comes to innovation. Fergus Turner, who was a Bertha scholar and now works on the Systems Justice Innovation team at the Bertha Centre. He recently caught up with social entrepreneur and changemaker Newa Hudiri, the man making waves in bringing technology, healthcare, 
and access to more people in Africa. In 2014, fellow Bertha Scholar and founder of Technovera, Neo Hutiri, was diagnosed with TB. For anybody, this would present a massive challenge. Not only is TB a health risk, but it also presents the issue of access to many people. Waiting in queues for hours on end is a real challenge. Imagine having to plan your day around a clinic visit. Neo decided to turn this challenge into an opportunity. He began designing the Pele Box. Now, thank you so much for joining us on this segment, Positive Outlook. Please tell us a little bit more about Pelibox, how it came to be, and a little more about your journey, your personal story. Hey, Fergus. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I, I guess my journey with, um, with, uh, with Pelibox as a solution somewhat started, as you rightly said, um, um, in 2014, in particular, it was January. Um, it was the first week of the month um, and first week um, of that year at that time. Um, I had, uh, for the last three months, I had been coughing consistently and uh, um, I had ultimately decided to move it beyond just, oh, this is something that will go away. Um, and I went to my local clinic. Um, at that time, I lived in the Val uh, Triangle. Um, lo and behold, the, 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 the results came through, um, and I was, uh, attested positive for tuberculosis or TB. Um, I was somewhat taken aback, um, as many of us would when you somewhat get diagnosed with a, um, a scary condition, um, where all of us know that sometimes TB does end in fatality. Um, and, I had then decided to start this rigorous program of wanting to be on treatment. Um, so when you're on a chronic treatment, which TB is part of, uh, you'd normally have to go collect medication at your local clinic on a monthly basis. Um, and you have to repeat that cycle continuously. They would give you a certain amount of pills for a duration. You'd have to finish that and then um, you'd have to come back. And a very, very simple thing that uh, most South Africans would know is something as, let's say, antiretroviral uh, treatment for, 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 for HIV. Um, similarly, that would be a chronic condition that you have to go and take medication from your local clinic on a monthly basis. And I somewhat got presented with this journey of wanting to be well, um, but also introduced to another challenge, which is having to spend hours and hours in queues. Um, and I was almost um, like I felt like my treatment or my disease was not necessarily the biggest challenge that I had, but my biggest challenge was the fact that I was waiting hours and hours in queues. Um, and South Africa is, um, has the biggest HIV um, uh, program in the world, which means that we've done really well in putting as many people on life-saving treatment for their um, for antiretroviral treatment. But the unintended consequence of that is that a lot of our clinics are somewhat um, 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 uh, clogged. We end up with a clinic that sees a lot of patients compared to what it was designed for. Um, and that means that a patient's average time in a clinic can be anything from two hours if you are in a metro-like city of Tswane to three and a half hours if you are on the outskirts of a small town. Um, in some cases, to a whole day of having to go to a clinic and go to collect your treatment. Thank you for giving us a real telling experiential sense of how you got here. Um, with this in mind and taking into account where we are 
during this global pandemic. I wonder if you can shed some light, reflect on the link, the linkages between healthcare, social innovation, and social justice. Of course, the issues that you're referring to intersect with many social justice issues experienced in this country and across the continent. Um, and so for some people that may not be obvious, um, how um, in your story and also in the current context, healthcare intersects the world of innovation and social justice. So if you could tell us a little more about how you see these things coming together and what that means to you. So within the social innovation movement or our community, um, we obviously go on this journey of wanting to say there's a social problem that exists. Um, and the social problem could be something as um, there isn't enough um, access to decent quality healthcare for a group of, of people. And this can be communities in low-income low settings, whether you're from a township, you're from a rural setting. Um, you might not have as as much of the means um, afforded to you for you to go into a private um, uh, hospital and go get the best quality care that a um, the top 1% in the country can. Um, so a social innovator or a social um, uh, change um, innovator would effectively look at that challenge and say, um, how do I apply a business model or a um, process of rigorously inter, um, it, it, like uh, assessing how, this problem exists, and then on top of that, building solutions that can effectively help address that. That's really, um, you know, it's a fantastic example of showcasing systems thinking in action and the intersection of systemic thought and systemic problem solving with justice. As always, an absolute pleasure to connect with fellow scholars and um, people doing the kind of work that you are up to. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your energy. And we look forward to hearing from you very soon. Opportunities for social innovation to create positive impact are all around us. We can become overwhelmed by the need, or we can choose to change our perspective and become creative and proactive. How can you make a difference in your local community? Perhaps there's a can in your area that you can link up with. Or perhaps you'd like to start one if there isn't one already. If that is something that interests you, please see the link to the CAN Facebook page in the show notes. Thank you for tuning in to Just For A Change, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. The podcast where we offer new perspectives on social innovation and social justice. If you're curious about solving social issues in your community or believe we can make a positive, tangible difference in the world, then make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. Also, remember to have a look at the show notes if you're interested in finding out more about the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship.